So normally, I start this podcast, this new season of the podcast, by um, by making up some story about why there hasn't been a podcast for ages. I was going to make up this story about how I've been away co-hosting the new series of Homes Under the Hammer. Right. Okay. Yeah. How's that been going? Well, see, I got a call from the former Aston Villa and England legend Dion Dublin. You remember Dion? I have no idea who that is. See, you've already said that you're not into football. Yeah. About me stepping into his boots and then how I got locked in a semi-detached in Dudley. But I'm not going to do that story. Okay. No, no, to be honest, compared to some of the crazy things that people make up about me, nothing that I can concoct can ever compete. So that's why I'm not going to do a story. Plus, you've got way more better stories to tell than I have. I have a few stories. Um, not sure if that'd be better or not. We can find out. Well, I think what I'll do, because I'm going to be organised today, and I'm okay. not going to introduce you like 20 minutes into the podcast, because I've done that in the past, and people write in and they complain, because they don't know at the beginning who's going to be on the show okay and then they have to wait like 15 or 20 minutes to me actually to remember to do the kind of formal introduction so i'm not going to do that today listeners i'm going to do that at the beginning and i'm going to formally introduce you perfect so this is the bit that you'd hear if this podcast was as good as something on the bbc right so i'm going to get ready now i'm going to have a glass of water are you going to make some intro music i'd like to hear some intro music that'd be great Mm, I could play the mouth trumpet. Yeah, go for it. Do you know what? I'm not going to do that. Oh, disappointing. <sighs> I'm sorry. I'm such a letdown. <laughs> <clears throat> Here we go. Very warm welcome back to Unfinished Business. This is episode 120. Christ on the bike. And I'm your host, Holmes Under the Hammer superfan, Andy Clark. And joining me this week is someone whose Twitter bio says that he's a genius billionaire playboy, philanthropist, and pathological liar. He's owner of UX Studio, Simple as Milk, and lead engineer at Unroll Me. But I don't believe that last bit, actually. James Seymour Locke. Hello. How was that? Um, you got philanthropy just about there, but it was a good try. I need to read that first sentence again. Joining me this week is someone whose Twitter bio says that he's a genius billionaire playboy, philanthropist. Ooh, that was, it's a Bloody hard word, that. Yeah. I'm not going to edit that back in. I'm just going to leave it as that. Okay, great. Philanthropist. And a pathological liar, apparently. Well, you wrote it. I did, yes. Or did I? (laughs) I see what you did there. So do you watch Homes Under the Hammer? I don't. I've not really had access to a TV for the past two and a half years. Oh, you see, that's disappointing. You can get it on uh, on BBC iPlayer. So you just VPN to iPlayer from wherever you are in the world. Jungles in Costa Rica or, I don't know, beaches in Thailand or wherever it is that you choose to hang out. And oh, it's 40 minutes worth of home renovation heaven. Great. That that sounds great. Okay. Yeah. Um, I do not- like a bit of Homes Under the Hammer, to be honest. Is it better than Game of Thrones? Oh, way, way better than Game of Thrones. Because, you know, you never know. They show you some dilapidated dump at the beginning of the show. And then it goes to auction. And then the guy comes along and he says, well, I'm going to turn it into this kind of like fabulous palace. Mm. And then at the end of the show, it's like, has he turned it into the fabulous palace? And has he, most importantly, made any money from doing it up? Okay. You don't get that on Game of Thrones. Nobody talks about renovating Winterfell, do they? 
I suppose not. They've been trying, but it's kind of in pieces right now. Oh, I can't give out spoilers on uh, Game of Thrones on the podcast. That would be terrible. Or can I? Or can I? Would that be really mean? Oh, God. Just... Well, it depends on which episode we're talking about, because, you know, by the time this goes out in like a week's time, we'll be kind of two episodes back. So who the hell cares? No, Could we, we not about... technically make up some spoilers for the next episode that's coming out for when the podcast comes out? We could, we, we, you know, people aren't going to find that funny though, because they're going to, they're not going to, they're going to be angry. <laughs> yeah. I but I, I did, I mean, you know, we might as well talk about Hodor for a minute. Yeah. Oh, Hodor. I can't cry on a podcast. It was beautifully done. There was, there was actually a lot of spoilers on BuzzFeed pre episode. Uh, some people theorized the storyline and roughly worked out how it would happen and why. And it was pretty much spot on. So, don't read BuzzFeed spoilers, even though they're way ahead of time and likely inaccurate, because sometimes they seem to get it right. Do you try and stay away from spoilers just in general? Um, I've tweeted a few by mistake a couple of times, and people haven't been too happy about it. I'm not one of these people that won't go and watch a Star Wars trailer, you know, if it's on. Dumbledore dies, in case anyone hasn't seen Harry Potter yet. Do you know what? I haven't seen Harry Potter. I'm going to Harry Potter World in two weeks. <laughs> I saw you mentioned that. Yeah, I'm super excited. Hang on, where is Harry Potter World? It's London. Okay. Yeah, not the big fancy one in America. I, I, that's next on my list. Now, I saw the first couple of films, but I, I, I haven't seen any of the later ones. Oh, you're missing out. Now, you see, it was never my thing. I did. I was one of those kind of grown-ups that did borrow... Alex, Alex, my son used to read Harry Potter all the time. So I did borrow the books, but I was one of those kind of adults that looked a bit kind of odd reading it in a sunbed on holiday, you know, just kind of just, it wasn't me. <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine you on a sunbed reading Harry Potter. No, do you know, it wasn't a good look. So you've been working on your dad bod though. So <laughs> next time you're on that sunbed, it's going to look fabulous. So what do you, is, do you have to buy tickets in advance to harry potter world is it like really hard to get in there do they're 35 pounds each Ooh, yeah but it's the only place you can get an actual butter beer and apparently they do butter beer ice cream now that tastes like shortbread so there goes my diet out the window oh my god that sounds amazing yeah we went to park asterix in france on the way home from holiday last year which is my equivalent of harry potter world yeah. I mean, there's only two things, theme parks, that I would really want to go to. One is obviously Park Asterix, because, you know, Asterix. Yeah. And the other would be if there was some kind of um, Planet of the Apes theme park. Oh, that'd be great. But then I suppose that's just London Zoo, isn't it, really? Yeah, I, I have problems with London Zoo. I always get there too late, and I never manage to walk around the whole place. And every time that happens, so I've given up going there now. We went to Twycross a couple of years ago for my birthday, and I didn't see a bloody single gorilla. They had them, because not all zoos have gorillas, but not a single one. They were just, I don't know, they'd gone on a coach trip to somewhere, a mystery tour to Skegness or somewhere. <laughs> Sounds great place for gorillas to go. I don't know. Well, I've been to Skegness, and it's usually full of gorillas, so <laughs> be said about that, the better. I'll tell you where you should go, though. Go to Hobbiton in New Zealand. It's mm. fantastic. No, I've not managed to go to new zealand yet so it is on the list it won't be this year we're going to go to australia later on in the year um but we we're going to west australia again so 
we won't be we won't be on the right side for New Zealand. Ah, uh, yeah, it, Australia is a massive place. Mm. Kind of getting from one side to the other. I was doing some comparisons recently, and I think it's Melbourne is ten, twenty times the size of New York. That it's it's just a vast and brilliant place. We really love WA, Western Australia, mm-hmm. and apparently. There's like, I think there's 4 million people live in the whole of Western Australia. Um, and about 2 million of those actually live in Perth and the metropolitan area around yeah. that. Um, but there's an area, you have to Google it, but, or Wikipedia it, but there's a, a place called the Kimberley region, which is in the northwestern part of Western Australia. And if you look at it on a map, it's like a tiny little bit. It's like a tiny little place. But apparently it's, one of the most beautiful places on the planet. And it's, it's, it's almost like, you know, Grand Canyon kind of scenery. It's utterly s- fabulous. And this place is the size of Texas and only 30,000 people live there. That's crazy. So it's vast. I mean, ah, oh, no, I love Australia. I, I can't travel anywhere that doesn't have Uber or easy Uber access because I still can't drive. Oh, well, we'll talk about traveling now, actually. So how do you, you know, when you go to these places, you just, you can't just stay in places that have got Uber. They don't have Uber in kind of middle of Costa Rica, do they? No. So I guess it depends on where I'm going. Um, A lot of places that don't have Uber tend to have really readily available taxi cab services. Uh, Egypt, for example, I'm off back to Egypt again in a couple of weeks. and like the Philippines, places like that, they tend to have, they have alternative transport. They have like motorized bike taxis and tuk-tuks and bits like that, that are super cheap and affordable. And they're so readily available. But apart from that, it's mostly just Uber everywhere. All right. So let's wind back a little bit for the sake of the listeners. Sure. Because, you know, I was surprised that I actually caught you in this country. Because I always make this joke when we have the the odd Twitter exchange about it being time for you to come home, like, yeah, some errant truanting schoolboy, and then you popped up and said, "No, I'm actually in Nottingham," which yeah. is which is unusual for you, I think, because you spend your life now traveling the globe. I do in a sort of nomad style. Yeah, it's it's been a journey. Um, and shortly coming to an end, but I'm not going to go into that just yet. Okay. So, I mean, you did what I suppose a lot of people would really love to do, which is just, I don't know, whether you decided one day, but you basically closed the front door and hopefully you made sure you turned the gas off. And then you just headed off and you didn't come back anytime soon. Yeah. Um, it was a period of maybe two months, I believe. I was attending a conference in Ireland, I think. Uh, the Web Summit conference, and I had not been at my apartment for maybe two months. Um, the apartment was also the office for the company. It's, that's probably another story. But um, yeah, I hadn't been there for so long. My business partner, he hadn't been there for so long. He was off elsewhere working with clients and spits and pieces. And we decided that what was the point in having an apartment? What was the point in having an office? What was the point of all these costs when we're never there anyway? So in a text exchange of maybe 20 messages, we decided that once we got back to England, 
we were going to sell everything. Our lease was coming up for renewal in like a month or two, just sell everything and take the company on the road. And within, I think it was six weeks, everything was sold. Anything that wasn't sold was given to charities. People just came around and put stickers on things they wanted to keep. And then we left. Wow. Did you go together? We did for the first six months, maybe. Uh, and we brought another one of our friends along with us on the journey. Because I would imagine that after a while, traveling on your own does get a bit lonely. Um, I really enjoy traveling by myself. Um, I'm an only child, so that probably explains it. Um, but also I found that traveling solo opens up a lot more opportunities. If you're two guys three guys or in general just a group of people traveling by yourself you're all turned inward you're having conversations that relate to each other you're all talking within a group in that kind of environment people don't necessarily want to come up and try and integrate themselves with a group mm. if you turn up to a bar sit down by yourself people will just come up and engage with you and i find that much more interesting meeting new people learning new things so the three of you headed off did you have like a detailed plan because i know that when you know when sue and i've done road trips in the past you know even though you're supposed to kind of just make it up as you go along you, know, you rent a van and go actually we actually had some fairly thorough plans and we'd know you know we'd know where we were going to be maybe not for the whole trip but we'd know where we were going to be for you know the next couple of weeks or something and we'd, you know, we'd plot the route out in advance did you do that did you or did you just say hell we're just going to go to the first place so David had always been the, the more organized one of the group. So he had planned the first country we were going to. We took it in turns to pick, basically. So no one really knew where we were going. Uh, but he booked the, like, we had the Airbnb sorted, everything like that was sorted. We didn't really have any plans when we got there, apart from we were going to Copenhagen first. Right. So it was going to the green light district of, um, was like the primary thing to do we were there from we knew we were there for a month we knew that we had time to sort things out we knew that we had client projects and stuff to work on so we kind of i'd prefer to fit plans in between the client work if we're working on like long-term projects and stuff like that so it was kind of all ad hoc and just up in the air um kind of how i like to live my life really what's it the green light area uh so it's called I don't want to touch my keyboard and make noises for the podcast to Google it. Um, <laughs> okay, I'll do that then. Copiana? Copiana? Yeah. Uh, off the top of my head, can't quite remember. But it's basically a shanty town in the middle of um, Copenhagen. Right. And no police can go in. You can't take pictures. You can't take your camera. People live there. There's also shops and also so many stalls to buy as much marijuana as you desire. But you can't take it out of the shanty town because it's illegal outside of it, even though you, you can and no one cares. But legally, you have to buy it and smoke it inside the area. Kind of like a red light district. But instead of prostitutes, you have marijuana. I've just Googled it, actually. Freetown Christiania. That's the one, is Christiana. What, is, yeah. what, um, is what Wikipedia says. Um a self-proclaimed autonomous neighbourhood of about 850 residents covering 34 hectares, 84 acres, in the borough of Christiansvorn in the Danish capital Copenhagen. I have never, ever heard about this place. 
it's great. It's it's kind of beautiful inside. It's very derelict. There's um, like really old vintage style caravans, like you'd see back in the movies, like wagon style. Um, lots of abandoned buildings. Like there's a kebab shop that they roast meat and stuff like that, and bits of food over a oil drum with fire coming out of it, and it's quite surreal, but it's really nice there. This is great. I never knew this place existed. Should definitely check it out. Copenhagen's only a short flight away. No, exactly. And I do like some of the things that you mentioned. Yeah. On occasion. I am going to Amsterdam next week, so... Well, I don't know what you're referring to. <laughs> but, okay, so is this place, you know, like you mentioned no policeman going there, but is, you know, is this place safe, you know, to walk around with a MacBook Pro in your backpack? It's it's self-policed by the people that live there and work there. Um, and they're very... They will, if you get a camera out, they will confront you. They will take it off you. Um, so it is very policed, but their entire business and their, all their work and everything they do there relies a lot on tourism. So they do look after tourists. They are very friendly. It would be completely fine. I mean, you're probably not going to get any Wi-Fi to get your laptop out and do some work there. So probably yeah. leave your laptop at home. I'd probably have other things on my mind anyway, to be honest. <laughs> You mentioned Egypt, and immediately I'm thinking, and this is before we talked about free Copenhagen, I'm thinking Egypt isn't the safest place to be going to, is it? I know. I booked my flight today, actually. I had to ring up EasyJet because they've disabled bookings from their site. I mean, I don't want to worry you because you're probably thinking, ah, Egypt's going to be fine, but it wouldn't be top of my list of places to go. Yeah, well... I've been meaning to visit a friend out there for a while. I've not seen him in two years. So well, now I'm back in the UK. The UK does direct flights to Hagada. So, yeah, going. Definitely going. Well, I'm the guy that was supposed to be in Iraq two years ago, so I can't talk about crazy places to go. Yeah, the the whole plane crash that's happened, I we still don't know what's caused it. But... I don't know. Yeah, I'm assuming I'm assuming everything's going to be fine because no one wants to fly EasyJet regardless. So no, do you know it's going to be fine. And you know if, you, if yeah. you think about it's like American tourists, oh, we can't go to Europe because it's you know do you know what if you're going to worry about stuff, you're never going to go out your front door, and then you're going to get blown up by somebody leaving the gas on. So who the hell cares? You know, you just got to go for it, haven't you? Yeah, and given my frequent trips to the US. Uh, I do have maybe six or seven stickers in my passport, which say I visited Egypt and are Egyptian visas. And they always question me why I've been to Egypt so many times over the past five years. And now after all of this, when I fly back to the States, probably in a month or two, probably no, probably two months, um, having another Egyptian sticker in my passport is probably not going to be great, but it's not on their no-fly list yet. No, I've got an Egyptian visa because we had a a client we did some work with a, a hotel chain down in Sharm el Sheikh and I went out there and it was great and but I you know the thing where you arrive in Egypt and you basically have to queue up and pay whatever it is and they give you the bloody great sticker in your passport yeah which he stuck right opposite my photo <laughs> it's on opposite the bloody photo page so whenever I go into the states I get the same thing it's like what we're doing in Egypt yeah so ah. always and i also now have a two sheets of a4 paper stapled in my passport from canada um about their nearly refusal to let me into the country 
Oh, why was that? Um, they pulled me aside for the random questioning. Um, I was very tired. They asked me for my current address and I said I didn't have one, which was a massive rookie mistake because they obviously thought I was coming to live there, maybe. Yeah. And they the lady didn't understand that when she said, what are you doing here? And I said, working in coffee shops, that I didn't mean working, working. in coffee shops. You weren't going to be a barista. No. And I tried explaining and it took a while and like showing her my website. And then like I was tweeting and live tweeting this the whole time. And I just had so many Canadians just tweeting me, just apologizing for everything. Um, because legally I can go there and work for six months. Legally, like everything was fine. Everything was in order. I was allowed to just turn up and go there for six months based on the pact that England has with Canada. But I went through like a two hour questioning process and ordeal. And apparently after they checked my bank accounts, my return flight out and my accommodation I'd booked, if I didn't have all of those in order, I would have been put in handcuffs and led to a detention center until they could ship me back to the UK. Yeah. Not the best thing to no, do and- after a, 10 hour flight no and that's all stapled and documented in my passport well you how does it work generally then because i mean you're working for your company you're doing client work you're not working for example actually in the country i presume you're not freelancing when you go to let's say australia Mm -hmm. um so you're doing all of the stuff so when you go into the country do you need a working visa no it's some countries, like America, for example, it's a very gray area um, because technically you are working, but you are not working for any American companies. So legally, you're not working in their eyes. But if you told them that you were coming and you were going to work for your company in the UK whilst you were there, then you're going to get asked a lot of questions. It's a very gray area. So it's best just not to say. And legally on the side of the law you're generally okay especially like new zealand stuff like that america's probably the only one that's a bit stricter Mm. Uh, so yeah it's generally okay the kind of like the nomad community's really been pushing for people that travel and constantly work to have some kind of universal law universal rule that if you're going to be going to a country for a month to work as a nomad you're not in any way contributing to the society to taxes to anything while you're there so to impose some kind of nomad tax based on like a set amount of how long you're there and just everyone that goes to a country to work nomadic for a month would just pay to that country in taxes a little bit of money uh, and not pay any taxes in their current country. And I think that'd be a more fair system to, to contribute to this, the country that you're currently in. Yeah, because well, I mean, we always, we're always really 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 careful whenever we travel because you know our business depends on being able to get in and out of a place so you know for example when we go to australia um, and to the states as well we you know we always absolutely make sure that we've got you know the working visa we don't do the thing yeah. where you know and i know some of my friends have done this and some of my friends have done this for the same sort of conferences where you know they'll they'll either not say anything at all and they'll try and get in on a tourist visa or they'll just say you know i'll hear on here on business or something like that yeah. Um, we always absolutely make sure that we've got literally, you know, we've got a, a, like a travel attorney guy that sorts all this kind of stuff out. And, uh, you know, because you just, you know, you have to be able to think, well, you know, in six months time or a year's time, I'm going to want to go back in, you know, you can't piss these people off. Yeah. You can face up to uh, like a 10 year ban for the U S for example, if you're going to the U S and you're going to be 
working but not necessarily working the bit their business visa allows for you not to work but for you to be able to take meetings consult look for investment that type of thing then you need to get the business visa to go yeah absolutely and it's just you know i would advise anybody that's traveling particularly now because it does seem to be getting a little bit trickier um just to make sure that that kind of stuff you know you just got it all sorted out which i suppose is a bit more difficult when you're what happened after Copenhagen? You said you mentioned you were there for a month. Did you then? Where was the next hop? Next hop. Oh, next hop. Uh, <laughs> this is tricky. Well, I was doing a country a month for two years, so it's trying to tie them all together. It might have been Prague. Might have been Norway. You didn't pick anywhere hot. Might have been Poland. No, we started. We started cold for some reason, which wasn't my preference. But we did a bit of snowboarding. So a country um, a month. Is, yeah, actually, that's really, really hardcore. Yeah, it was, it was pretty hardcore. Um, especially kind of not really easing ourselves in to it, and just being like, "Well, we're going to do one country a month. We're going to cover as many as possible for a while until we get fed up and do something else." And did you have ongoing client work when you started this, or how did you explain this to clients? Yeah, so we didn't tell them. It was a great idea. I highly recommend doing this. Uh, I've got a few friends actually that are based in the States and one of them is relocating to a different area of the States and had a lot of clients drop her due to not being able to meet with her in person. I've had other friends with similar experiences. We didn't tell any clients before that would be the best approach. Um, nice and honest. But it, to be fair, it didn't really matter because we don't actually have any English clients. All of our clients are in the States or Australia or out of the country. So we never actually meet any of our clients. We never do anything apart from remote working. So it didn't make any difference. We're pretty good at working remotely with clients, managing our time. And, you know, I'll get up at four o'clock in the morning if I need to take a meeting because it's the best time for the client. Well, I suppose if you're dealing with remote clients anyway, it's yeah. not, not going to make a lot of difference to them. No, it should make no difference at all, except for being in like New Zealand and stuff like that, working with clients on the East Coast, uh, like me being in the future and kind of their morning is my two o'clock in the, their like 9, 10 a.m., 3 p.m., whatever it is, it's like 2 a.m. for me. So it was lots of me sleeping late and waking up late, which is perfect for me, to be honest. So... <laughs> This being in the UK now and working with American clients is great because, you know, I wake up at 11 and I'll go to bed at 2 to 4 a.m. So how did you, because you're working mainly with startups. Yeah. Um, how do you generally find clients? Are they, is it all pretty much like us where people will come to you because of reputation or through recommendations or that kind of stuff? Yeah, mostly through reputation and recommendations. And also we work like, with larger companies, startups have such a high churn rate of employees. So I might be working with startup X and then they get acquired or, or their lead marketing person changes jobs. And then when they need work and the marketing person, so we work with the same marketing person at a couple of different companies and the, yeah, the churn over the churn of, uh, employees at startups is quite high. So if you've worked with one person at a startup, they'll get back in touch from the next company they're working at, which is really good. I mean, people remember you, they'll, if they 
need something that you've worked on with them before or they just know you really well or they like working with you, they're going to put you forward to work on the next project. So I suppose it didn't really matter at all where you were based geographically. In fact, I imagine for you know certain cool startups, they'd probably think that what you were doing and working with you guys you know, in the middle of Afghanistan or wherever it was that you ended up is actually a really cool thing. It probably yeah. adds to the story. Yeah, they, they, some of them really loved it. They, they thought it was great. And we worked with uh, quite a few companies which are, in fact, remote-based themselves. So they didn't have an office and all their employees work remotely. So they just pick, like, oh, these guys, you know, they do the same. They have the same philosophy behind how we run our company. We think it would be great to work with them. So who's on the team now? Okay, so the team with Slim back now, um, our lead developer, Kevin, uh, is now working for my friend John's company, Ghost, as their lead Ember developer. Actually, yeah, because I'm just thinking about this a minute ago. You weren't the first person that I noticed going off and doing this whole nomadic thing, because John O'Nolan, that's the John that you were just referring to, yeah, did exactly the same thing a few years ago. Yeah, he did it two years before me, I think. He was probably one of the first people in our industry to to kind of mainstream do this and write about it. Is he still doing it? No, he lives in Egypt. Oh, okay. So that's why you're heading off to Egypt. It is, yes. Ah, okay, cool. Yeah, he's settled down out there. Uh, I go there quite often to visit, hang out and kiteboard. Ah, so nice. It's been two years, so it's definitely due for doing that again. Oh, I'll give him my regards when you see him. But no, I remember, that I think he actually started the whole ghost thing while he was off on his travels. Yeah, that was probably four years ago whilst I was in Egypt. He came up with the idea. Yeah. We were sitting around a, a table and he came up with the idea and you know, didn't think too much of it. And six months later, there was this initial draft blog post up online that just went viral. And from there, he managed to build the Kickstarter campaign and raise all the money. And it's going really well. Cool. Yeah, well, give him my regards. What do you? Across the old fossil. <laughs> So anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. Where were we? Do you know, I can't remember. <laughs> oh, no, you talk about who's on the team. Oh, yeah. So um, David um, left last year, I think. He wanted to go and pursue, you know, a separate career path, which is fine. And I took over the, the remainder of the company. So right now it's me and Glenn mostly. And we have a couple of subcontractors that work with us regularly for clients that need particular skill sets. And you're doing what? Predominantly UX stuff? Um, predominantly design and UX stuff. I'm working pretty much nonstop with Unroll Me at the moment, which is fine. I love working with them and I have the full creative control to shape the bits of the product that need to be worked on. And Glenn's working on a lot of smaller projects with some of our contractors. I need to actually have a look at Unroll Me because I think my inbox is getting away from me. Yeah, you should, should get, things. definitely get the iPhone app. The iPhone app is great. You have an iPhone, right? Of course I've got an iPhone. Okay, just checking. What do you think I'd use checking. an Android phone? <laughs> like some kind of animal? Yeah. Just no, even, even the lead, say, uh, one of the CEOs, CEO, CTO, CEO of Alphabet admitted to using an iPhone. And, you know, it's his company. That makes Android say so. we've just alienated half the half the listeners. So three people have just tuned out now. Yeah, the, just... the three Android listeners. 
So talk about designer, because you're doing what? Visual design, UX design? Yeah, I'm kind of doing a bit of everything. Uh, I'm, I tend, I like to say that I don't design anymore because it's very rare that I'll open Sketch, very rare that I'll open Photoshop, very rare that I'll probably design anything that isn't in the browser. So I've changed, like, I've changed from user experience designer to user experience engineer because I'm writing code for the solutions. I'm not necessarily designing per se. The result is a design, but I take a more engineering standpoint from kind of data focused design. We're going to have to disagree about this word engineer because I just think that engineers are people that make bridges and flyovers. And I, and I, you know, I, I don't think that noodling with a bit of code should be called engineering, but I'm, I know that I'm on my own. But then I guess development also applies to putting up houses for your homes under the hammer. Uh, no, that is true. And of course, extra bonus points for bringing up homes under the hammer again. Yeah. It's one of my favorites. No, it's interesting because we just had this kind of, I don't know, exchange on Twitter again. where we seem to do things um about general design stuff because i've been just you know i have to say i've just been really frustrated over the last couple of years as to just generally how boring design is i think on the web you know i think you know john gold don't you i do yes i've never met him but i'd like to meet him at some point he sounds like a cool guy but he did this tweet which i don't know it's been in every bloody conference presentation i've seen recently been doing the rounds um this like which one of these two layouts are you designing at the moment (laughs) yes i've joked with friends about creating an npm module that you can just install and then just tag after it the hero header content left body um featured image uh, testimonial block and then just print and it will just build the code for a marketing site i have no idea what you just said at npm just like command line build oh, okay. marketing site with these features I'm, just kind of boilerplate done i'm joking because i'm actually allergic to the command line but anyway <laughs> no, john did this tweet which kind of just sums up my general feeling about web design stuff at the moment and i just think it's a bit lazy and a bit kind of ordinary and not at all kind of intellectually challenging and i went to a conference last week and it was a bloody good one actually i went down to um port 80 which was like a yeah. uh, an event down in newport which uh joel hughes puts on you know really successfully it was a brilliant event everybody was very well welcoming and everything else but do you know what it was so dev heavy um you know there was i don't think there were many people that spoke that didn't mention grunt or gulp at some point in the talk yeah maybe they didn't mention it maybe it's like oh well i was going to talk about grunt or gulp but you know that's but i'm going to talk about else. webpack instead or webpack gonna, is way better well, well whatever it is you just <laughs> said right but you know but nobody nobody was talking about design and i don't mean just in a you know either in a kind of a hand wavy here are some kind of concepts talk you know, there's nothing worse than just somebody showing off their portfolio. Yeah. Or kind of a, you know, a UXE tub thumping talk. Nobody was talking about design. You know, nobody was talking about the kind of essentials in a way, you know, whether it be type or color theory or layout or whatever. Um, and I was just really, I sat there thinking, this isn't actually the place for me. Yeah. I I can totally relate to that. I've 
accidentally sat through a talk after a design talk about MongoDB for an hour because I didn't want to be rude and get up in the middle of the guy's talk. Had no idea what was going on. I think that was like Dibby 2011 or something like that. Um, but I'm a big fan of conferences that have like two tracks, two separate stages, one focused on development, one focused on design. And as someone that does both, I can switch between topics that interest me. Or if you're purely design focused, you can go and just live in the the design track conference hall. Or if you're development focused, you can just go in the development one. But also it gives the opportunity for people to kind of cross across and like learn things they might not know before. And I feel I feel like that's a great way to run a conference. I've not been a fan of multi-track conferences. I mean, two's probably I've done I've done two track conferences. Anything more than that's just a bleeding circus. I didn't know you could do more than two tracks. I feel like that would be a bit much. No, well, I mean, some of these larger events. I mean, I don't know. I think it works in kind of webby circles. Or I think the what used to be the future ofs. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they did some kind of circus in San, in, not in San Francisco, in Las Vegas, which was like I don't know, ten tracks or something. Um, wow! And I've done several kind of company or other kind of industry events where there's been lots of tracks, but I don't, you know, I don't enjoy them that much. I honestly only go to conferences to get drunk and see friends that, you know, live in different countries, live all over the world. Conferences are the chance to get together and it normally involves lots of drinking and lots of after parties and on occasion, steam room and hot tub parties, which has happened at several conferences. I do know. I don't want to go there. (laughs) No, everyone just like has a drink and chills out in the hot tub for the afternoon. It's just great. Everyone like chats, catches up. It's it's great. I mean, you learn a lot of stuff at conferences, but after you've been to quite a few, um, sometimes you have a lot of the same speakers, but also sometimes if you're cutting down on conferences, you go purely because there's several conferences that a lot of your friends are attending. And it's just like a family getting back together is what I really enjoy. No, I know. I mean, there are, the, there are these kind of signature events that I think um, – I mean, yes, obviously it's about the content, but people do go because, you know, they can, they know that a bunch of people are going to be there. So, I mean, actually it was really nice that, you know, a lot of my friends were heading to Newport of all places last yeah. week. Um, but the, you know, there's been the app medias back in the day for me or the, um, new adventures conferences in Nottingham, you know, were yeah. obviously not just good events, but they were, you know, nice places for people to congregate as well. Um, but no, you mentioned Dibby. I'm, Dibby. Dibby was always about that kind of design it, build it yeah. dichotomy. Was it two tracks? It was, wasn't it? Yes. If I remember correctly. I just think that, you know, it needs to be two conferences. Yeah, but the problem with two conferences is that people that specialize in both or want to learn both or have cross interests have to buy two tickets and they could be different dates. It's easier to block off one date than it is to block off two so i quite like the idea of two tracks providing you know i i'm going to go to it if i find that both tracks are relevant to me or if one track is definitely relevant to me because there are there are loads of conferences that do one track and specialize in one thing but if i'm you know paying three five hundred pounds for a ticket i'd rather you know pick two things and learn two different things at once i guess well, I think the best events are always the ones where you've got somebody that really um, 
they kind of direct it. So um, it's very kind of, you know, well edited. So they'll be, they'll be choosing the speakers and the topics so that nothing conflicts. And so that, you know, there's a nice kind of narrative that goes between all the talks. Um, and I know that's hard. You know, the best ones that I think I've been to that do that kind of thing really, really well is Beyond Tellerand. Mark Teeler's conference in um, in Berlin and Dusseldorf. If you ever get a chance to go to that, it's really, really good. Okay. Um, but I don't know. I just think to myself, you know, when people are choosing subjects for an event like this, why are they not talking? Why are they not choosing design talks? Why why is nobody talking about typography? I mean, I don't mean web fonts. You know, why is nobody talking about, you know, typographic design or um, talking about layout design? Not CSS grid, but, you know, actual layout principles. Yeah, I'm I'm going to play devil's advocate and say that design has moved so far now that development is in so much more intertwined than it was a few years back. If you... I'm still a firm believer of you shouldn't be allowed to design for web if you can't code for it. Um, but that's probably a too long a topic to get onto. No, no, no. We can talk about that if you like. I've said I've said similar things in the past and got into trouble for it. Well, yeah, I I think like especially you see people um, like creating mockups and they're like, well, this is how it's going to look on desktop. This is how it's going to look on tablets. It's going to go how it's going to look on mobile and. They've got no idea what's happening in between. The client's got no idea what's happening in between. If I'm building it, I've got no idea what's happening in between. But then also, if you don't know how to write well-coded CSS and HTML, you don't understand how a design from mobile is going to transition and how the layout, the code is going to respond to different sizes and how it's the layout is going to flow. And you can't just pick a area and be like, well, this is going to move down here when it gets bigger or it's going to move up here when it gets smaller. If the code doesn't physically flow that way, then you've just wasted your time. You've just wasted the developer's time. You just learn to code. It'd be better off for everyone. Sometimes designers don't necessarily need to know how to write code, but they either, they either need to work with somebody that does you know, that's what happens, you know, in our little studio. Um, you know, I tend to write most of the HTML and CSS and, and Sue that works with me, our designer, she doesn't code, but she, yeah. but she has an appreciation of what can be done and what can't be done with modern CSS and techniques because, you know, she works with me every day. Yeah. If you're sitting next to each other, especially, then it's always easy to ask, you know, how's this going to work here or is this going to respond correctly? Or I'd like to do this. Is this possible or necessarily possible but is this possible in the scope of the time frame and the budget is another useful question because sometimes designers get if they don't code they can get very carried away with beautiful beautiful bits and pieces that may not necessarily fit the development budget or timeline so where does that fit with nobody talking about you know designing layouts or typography or color theory um i don't really know personally all my typography and all my layouts are done in code. So I'm probably the least useful person to ask for that. Um, Cause I'm a big believer in algorithms and using math to calculate everything in the work that I do. So that's quite tricky when I'm, if I design in sketch, if I design in Photoshop. 
So I like to use set up my math to handle how my typography is going to work, whether it's golden ratio or some other type of ratio to build everything out. And then from there, I let the math that's proven to work and proven to be very effective handle those choices for me. There's a couple of things that I use all the time, which you'd sort of call math-based, I suppose. Um, One is grid set, Mm -hmm. which I just wish they'd do something new with it, you know, or please don't kill it. Because I use grid set all the time for coming up with, you know, interesting layout grids. Well, I'll put a link in the show notes, but it's gridsetapp.com. It used to be Mark Bolton's um, until he sold it all to Monotype. And then the other thing that I use, which you've probably seen as well, which is modularscale.com. Yeah. So basically you punch in what your base font size is and then you'll pick a ratio, you know, some whatever it is. And there's loads of them, you know, minor thirds or whatever it might be. And that will calculate your typographic hierarchy for you. Mm-hmm. And it's brilliant. And it's a really useful tool, but it's not going to tell me about, for example, um, it's not going to teach me about choosing complementary typefaces. No. It's not going to tell me how to look for the same kind of characteristics in two different typefaces, possibly from two different type designers, and know that they are going to work really nicely together. Yeah. Nobody talks about that. I mean, okay, so Tim Brown wrote a great book about combining typefaces for what used to be Five Simple Steps. Um, I think you can get it free now. I'll try and find a link for the show notes. Um, But, you know, you're not hearing people talking about that or teaching that at at conferences. Um, Yeah. And it's not, you know, the algorithm's not going to teach me about designing kind of optimum type sizes for uh layout widths you know we call it the measure you know the width of the readable line length yeah it's not going to teach me about that either so you can't reduce that to an algorithm well jake uh from typekit wrote a sas based plugin which is really awesome and it will calculate and increase the size of the fonts based on the width to have the optimal number of words or characters per line responsibly i think i actually have seen that which is really, really nice, um, especially for blogs. Really, really nice bit of code. So what about kind of other, I don't know, I suppose design essentials, you know, color theory. I suppose you could say, well, you know, we're going to pick some branding colors and then, oh God, what do they call? They used to be called Cooler, K-U-L-E-R. But oh, it's color.adobe.com. Yeah. So I suppose you could use a tool like that for coming up with uh, different color combinations, you know, complementary etc you can in post css sas you can write hue put in a cut put in a color variable put in a percentage and have math calculate out color palettes which designers are going to hate me for saying this but i don't know much about color theory to be honest so i'm probably not the best person to ask and to recommend using algorithms for generating your colors but the majority of the time i'm not dealing with branding and i'm given colors to work with a lot of the time And breaking branding is a big no-no in terms of clients. They get pretty angry when you want to break branding. But Glenn on our team also works on creating branding and he will come up with the color theory side of things for me. It's interesting though, because I mean, there is an element of tools, obviously, because, you know, we're not just making paintings or, you know, pictures of websites. You know, we are using web tools to make websites or digital products or whatever we want to call them. 
and I'm, Jen Simmons does a really, really good talk at the moment about, um, and it's along similar lines to mine, about uh, layout. And she goes into um, the design side of things. You know, look at these fantastic layouts that you can see in magazines or poster designs or whatever. Really kind of inspirational stuff. She'll ask, you know, why aren't we doing this kind of stuff on the web? And then, ah. and then she'll go into, for example, some practical stuff because people always like the practical stuff, right? They, you know, so she'll go into the little bit of the kind of CSS grid theory and she'll point to a few tools and that kind of thing. So, the, you know, the tools are important, but nobody's actually teaching. Nobody, I, mean, I wouldn't stand up on stage and say, okay, let's just use this SAS plugin to generate our color palettes. But you might teach people about, you know, knowing what harmony is. And knowing about, you know, densities and hues and, and how things work together and, you know, tints and all that kind of old school print stuff that you can still use on screen. Nobody, nobody teaches that stuff. I'm going to offend every single designer listening, probably. And you're welcome to tune out after I say this. <laughs> uh oh. Web design is not a picture. And in my experience, how much does design really matter? Okay, you've all left now, so I can just talk to the developers. Yeah, I'm, I'm sitting here in stunned silence. So, <laughs> like, design, like, websites aren't a picture. If we, they, design still exists. Design is still relevant. But if we go and take a look at um, gov.uk, fantastic site, that is not a picture. That is a credibly well thought out put together, usable, functional site. There are no rounded corners. There are, there are no fancy links. There is, there's like, it's, there is very little design for design's sake. No. Absolutely none. And that's what makes it brilliant. And from my experience, I design with data, which means I put no personal opinion into the design that I'm doing. I follow the data. And if the data tells me that this big pretty hero picture at the top of the page should go away and it should just be a big white blank space with the same text on top of it. If the data tells me that that converts five, 10% higher, that is what's going to be there. Because at the end of the day, I'm working for a client to get in the highest conversions. My, my opinions as a designer, as a developer are relevant. But if the data is telling me that this is making the company more money, this is making the user this is making things easier for the user. This is working better. That is what I'm going to follow. And at the end of the day, that is still design, but it's not opinionated by me. It's opinionated by data and data has no ego. But you look at something, for example, an article on .gov UK, which, you know, gov.uk, which, which I think is, you know, I, I look at it all the time for various things. I mean, it's, it's a massive improvement over, God, what used to be there before. Um, in terms of, you know, finding out how to, you know, whether it's safe to travel to Egypt, for example. But, you know, and I suppose when you go to the article that tells you whether it's safe or not to travel to Egypt, you know, you're not looking for, um, you're not looking for any personality there, are you? You're not looking no. for, you know, whoever it is. Oh, God, I, I was going to say Michael Gove, but God, because he's the only bleeding politician that came to mind. Um, you know, you're not looking to hear his voice or have that personality presented through the design on a site like that. I get that. But knowing how wide the column widths should be 
yeah. for an optimum kind of reading length and understanding that, you know, the narrower the column, the wider the uh, the narrower the leading needs to be you know the, the tighter the line height needs to be or if you reverse something out for example if you have light text on a black background it helps readability if you increase the leading you know if you open up the line height for example yeah that kind of stuff is still extremely important but nobody teaches it it's not about kind of hand wavy design for design's sake or decoration it's design theory and nobody yeah. teaches it yeah, I, again, still probably shouldn't be speaking on design because I have no background in design, um, no education. I work purely based on data and results. And that's something that I know because I can see it. Um, I'm very, I lack a lot of empathy, so I shouldn't really be designing for users full stop. You and me both. But yeah, the data, as someone that lacks a lot of empathy... Data guides me very well to effectively get results. But typography is really important in terms of personality and portrayal and stuff like that, um, creating a connection, an emotional connection with users. But it depends on the project. If you look at Amazon, they are not doing, they're just ugly, terrible, ugly, ugly sites. But they have a lot of incredibly smart engineers, designers, data analysts that have put that site together to be the most performant it can possibly be and drive the most amount of sales. There's psychology in there. There's pretty much everything you could think of Amazon are doing. And it resulted in that ugly, terrible mess that is Amazon. And there's even a carousel on there. So I'm not sure what they're doing, but it's working for them. And it depends on the project completely depends on the project you're working on. But you've picked some really stinky examples, though. I mean, okay, got for your case. Not, They're examples that work. But maybe they do work, but that's not the web, though. That's not the entire web. You can't boil everything no. down to, well, if it works, then it's just okay. Because that's the argument that I seem to get fired back at me uh, whenever I kind of bring up these rants on Twitter. It's, well, you know, well, it's working. Or... You know, well, what else do we need as long as it's doing the job or whatever? Um, but that's not, that's not everything. You know, you can't get out of bed just to, in the morning, just to do something because you know the numbers add up. That's boring. No. You do something because you get, you know, you put something. Okay. You, you mentioned this earlier on about design being opinionated or, um, yeah. you know, actually I will disagree. And I'll say, do you know what? You should be putting something of yourself be it your own taste or your own experience or just something that you want to leave, you should be putting that into a design. You know, I would love, and this is purely ego, but, you know, I would love somebody to look at a, a site that, you know, we've created and then say, do you know what? I can see his fingerprints all over that. Yeah. I think they created, like a lot of designers do want to create their mark and that is fine, but don't do it at the expense of the result. No, that I can agree with because you know if you don't, you're not just designing something for design's sake. Otherwise, yeah. you know, you end up with you know, well, you're not really designing for the web, then are you? You're, you're no. designing a pretty picture of a a website that doesn't exist. I designed something yesterday and I looked at it and I thought this is really pretty. I really like this. And anyone else that looks at it is not going to may not have that same opinion because. They don't necessarily form the same opinions as me. They might not have the same style. They might not have the same tastes. And 
I think it's very attractive. It's completely white with text and there's a couple of illustrations. But again, from like traveling and living a life out of one bag, I've learned to appreciate minimalism and pick a few small details like I do with my luggage and the things that I own and work on making sure they are the best they can be whilst keeping everything else to the minimum possible. I mean, you are making, I mean, you say you're not designing or visually designing, but you know, you are making decisions. I'm sitting here looking at this unroll me site and you know, Oh God, that's the, uh, yeah, I'm working on the new one at the moment. All right. Well, you know, are you going to (laughs) be, are you working on the button design, for example, on the new one? So there was a style guide created for the iPhone app, which we need with the new brand. So the new branding needs to be continued across to the marketing site eventually because i just think that there are opportunities to put you know the brand personality if you like or something different in for example the designer buttons but for a lot of people people think you know what buttons are solved now you know buttons buttons used to be there used to be a lot of variety in them you know some i don't know it was all faddy you know when oh yeah you got to get those drop shadows and when you click them they press in and do you remember when uh i forget which version of uh OS 10 it was um an earlier one where it had those kind of almost like jelly bean buttons they looked like you could lick them yeah and aqua and then you know everybody was doing aqua buttons on websites yeah i'm not talking about necessarily that kind of fattiness but you know for a lot of people now just buttons are solved you know i know how to do a button it's just I... like a flat background thing maybe it'll have little roundy corners but you know there's got to be more than that even to I... kind of button design I think Google's really solving these kind of problems with material UI. Oh, God, no. Yeah, I know. Because the logic behind it is very good. The way they're laying out a 3D perspective of how the screen is, it's not necessarily flat design because flat design can be quite useless in terms of differentiating parts of the UI. So the way they're doing things has still has that flat concept because a screen is flat. And but still uses the shadows to create depth of field in items that are raised and need to be clicked, etc. And I tweeted out as half as well, mostly as a joke, um, a while back that people flip out, and I was like, would it be so bad if the entire web had one set style guide and theme? People weren't happy about that. Um, but would if every web page followed the same set of rules how much easier would the web be for people that are new to the internet people that are elderly if they knew that the main menu was going to be in the top right the logo in the top left if this icon was intrinsically linked to this if they went to this area on a website they can get this information um it would completely destroy design it would completely destroy the web per se but if everything followed a same style guys rather than designers being like, I'm going to put a hamburger icon over here that does this on desktop, despite the fact there's room for a perfectly good menu because it does a fancy animation or, you know, I'm going to parallax scroll this thing so that James on his MacBook can't scroll it without Chrome crashing. Just, you know, like we don't have to go so far as to make the web follow one style guide, but I would like to see some kind of overseeing body that, basically just says no 
you can't do this. This is stupid <laughs> and this is useless for your users. I thought we already had that. I thought that was Twitter every time somebody did a branding redesign. That is Twitter, yes. No, no, I but, mean, that kind of thing. I mean, I can imagine there's engineers. <clears throat> just a list of 10 rules that you should keep. Oh, you We've see, got accessibility laws. We've got accessibility rules. But we haven't got things make stopping people making stupid design have decisions. Have you ever read, is it Jacob or Jacob Nielsen's stuff? I mean, I remember back in, you know, the early 2000s or whatever, when really sort of talking about usability for the first time. And he would do that kind of stuff. You know, links have to be blue and the search box always has to go in the top right and the logo has to go in the in the top left. All that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's, but that's just about how the thing works and it's it should be. But you knew what was a link. I guarantee there's some web pages you go to and there's a link on the page and you don't even know it's there. No, absolutely. And, you know, it turns into, you know, a bloody, I was going to say bargain hunt. Easter egg hunt or something. Yeah. I'm not suggesting that that's a good idea, but you can't just say, well, these are the rules. And I mean, engineers would love that. You know, yeah. I'm sure there are developers, you know, they're still using Bootstrap. Exactly. Out, that's... Well, this is why I suppose horrible things like Bootstrap are so popular because it's like design solved. You know, got my buttons. Off we go. And like, I absolutely hate Bootstrap. Um, I think it's great because it allows you to prototype things really quickly. It has a consistent rule set. But every every again, every app looking the same is just weird and wrong. And as soon as you start applying styles over top of it, you've just bloated your... Well, it's, because, it, because it covers everything, it's incredibly bloated, as any kind of framework would be. You do the same thing, though, with websites. This is the thing. And it it's so much more... The, the result you talked about, success, and you're not going to design something that which is supposed to, you know not work intentionally you know you want one design for one company isn't going to work for another exactly so it's but it's so much more than just about how something works it's got to be you know an an element in in some in a product success or a website success or a services success or whatever is the feeling that somebody gets from actually engaging with it whether it's the first time or the second time or whatever so when somebody lands let's say on the the home page of the unroll me site the marketing site that i know you're now redesigning you know i would be asking the question not just about whether or not somebody can find the get started now button and understand you know what the product's about within but the emotional connection of um having a busy life and having an inbox which if is busy contributes to you having a busy life and having a clean inbox relates to perhaps simplifying one area of your life and creating emotional connection. Exactly. Now, none of that stuff, sorry to whoever designed this website in the first place, but none of what you just said is communicated through this homepage. Yep. And, you know, yeah, I'm busy and I'm frantic and I'm sick to bloody death of, you know, whatever it might be, sending me marketing emails or something, you know, something that I'd signed up for. And, you know, you're not just selling the service, you know, the unsubscription service, you're selling that kind of peace or respite or um, the ability to focus on something and not be distracted, you know. Yeah, with different user personas talking to existing users and how their lives are busy, where their lives are busy and how Unroll Me helps them and creating complete user personas in order to design for them. So that, that purpose that you just mentioned isn't coming through on the existing website no it's not the sense of peace in a way and the kind of a 
you know, take a deep breath. Don't worry. We're taking care of it. Here's the really quick way that you can just get started with this thing. And then, do you know what? The rest of the day is your own. Yeah. And the new site that I'm rebuilding looks exactly the same. Uh, do you know why? Go on. Because I can't make design. I can't make design changes. We're building with new architecture, but I can't make design changes without A, B testing them against the current version, because I need to be able to prove to the people I'm working with, to myself, and prove that the changes I'm making are having increases in conversion rates. I mean, I could come up with a great new design and launch it, and you know, that's it might work better, it might not, but I'd rather incrementally change things as a process over time, focusing on areas to improve, change messaging, change wording, as much as changing text on buttons, just keep running tests, multiple AP tests, A-B tests, keep running them, iterating until it ends up as what would be the final product that then would then be iterated on again and again and again. It's like just an ever-evolving process and users change different personas come to the site. It's just a constant case of iteration. I find that whole kind of thing fascinating. We don't do it, but you know, I do find that kind of methodology really interesting. But I would find that really stifling in terms of how I would approach the design of something like this. Oh, it completely kills your design creativity. I would go back to the same personas that you have. Um, and I, but I'd be looking at, you know, I'd be looking at, for example, uh, you know, the art direction of images. You know, I'm, I'm going to be looking at, for example, the great big header that you've got across the page here with, you know, it's an iPad, I presume, or the top of a MacBook Pro. Um, was it an iPad? It's an iPad. Um, I, yes, it is an iPad. It's an iPad with the interface in it, and there's a cup of coffee sneaking in, and uh, and a you know, and a, a pen. And I think that's notes. like four years old now. I think so. I would be looking at that, and I'd be saying, okay, so based on you know this this concept that um, you know of sort of freedom or you know respite or whatever it might be, you know, we're going to look at really really cleverly kind of art directing those images. I'd be looking at, well, what are we saying here? Unsubscribe with one click, you know, clean up your inbox. They're very kind of product focus or feature focused things. We're not, yeah. we're not actually saying any of the same thing, any of the things that you just mentioned to me. Yeah. So I would approach it from a totally different point of view. And I'd still be thinking about, you know, color theory or not, not so much, but I'd certainly be thinking about typography and layout and that kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, sure. You might test it later or, you know, and you might yeah. still continually kind of test it, but we, if you did a complete redesign, you would AB test it against the current one, despite there being so many different factors, your employer or the company that's contracted you, if you AB test your new design against the old one and your design performs twice as good as the new one, you've got a benchmark to be like, Hey, we did a good job. I'm but just, then if it's converting at half the half of it they're losing half their revenue and that's just not acceptable to the company and i completely get that and you know as a you know as somebody that wants to make sure that you know people are getting the right messages from our website and you know they're finding how to contact us and how to you know go through and send us the information that we need to kind of you know send them a brief or whatever um i totally get that you know i look at our site and i think oh, how are we going to improve this um I don't think that we can just reduce design to, you know, noodling with iterations. 
And so at some point, somebody's got to be teaching you about the right typefaces to choose and the right layout combinations and about yeah. how making something look slightly distinctive so it doesn't look like every other web app or travel <laughs> site or news site or whatever. Definitely. These are the fundamentals that, regardless of what you change, are still there. The colors, the color theory, the colors are still there. Even if you change out the button for a different button color in your color palette, the typography is still going to stay. Like these are the underlying factors that are going to be the basis for you to make these iterations. I know where we need to look. Where are we looking? Dribble. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. Oh. So. I love Dribble when it came out. I still love Dribble for the purpose of Dribble and what Dribble was there for, and that is to post up screenshots of things you're working on for feedback. Dribble isn't for screenshots of things you're working on now. No one on Dribble uploads anything that's half done. Everything is painstakingly polished. Everything is made to the 800 by 600 pixels of perfection, and it is designed for Dribble or it's designed for an app and then created in the context of for dribble and it's just a, you know, with them releasing portfolios now you can tell that the shift has taken place and it is now a portfolio of tiny snippets of your design work which look absolutely fantastic but have no relevance no context no data behind them nothing that explains what they are or their decisions and personally i think a well-written blog post about design is better than looking at small pictures of snippets of UI. No, I couldn't agree more. I remember having a conversation with Dan Maul um, on this podcast, actually, back some point last year. And we were talking about portfolios um, and about case studies and the fact that everybody just posts finished work now. And, you know, there might be the occasional blog post, but, you know, what could be really interesting, Dan was talking about his work on Star Wars and various things. And, uh, you know, he could have written a small book, you know, and included everything in it, you know, all of the original sketches and the stuff that went wrong and, you know, how he ended up making design decisions and, you know, maybe even how one thing be performed better than another. Yeah. Do you know, that sort of stuff would be bloody fascinating. Some of, the most beautiful things that I see on Dribble are from icon and logo designers that post up the outlines, the sketches, and kind of like the geometry, golden ratio overlays of the things they've designed to see how it was built up from that. And I think that's like a beautiful way of portraying stuff on Dribble, of showing you know your process and how this came to be from circles, squares, shapes kind of how everything is put together and how your mind put this together before actually turning it into a finished product. Some people get really, really upset about dribble posts. I've noticed yeah. on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. There's quite a few. I, I mean, we get work through dribble, so we still post things to dribble and people come to us through, they might see something or they like a design style and then come to us. And then hopefully they go to the site and look at our case studies, which I think, I turned off recently, so probably not anymore. But yeah, Dribble is a great place for freelance designers to get work for pure design. Like no one's going to come to you for development work or front-end development work through Dribble. They're looking purely for aesthetic. Well, we've found, well, 
two illustrators on Dribble that we, we now work with. Um, yeah. Josh Cleland, who's worked with us for years now doing the silly ape headers on the website. Um, <laughs> he, I found him on Dribble. Yeah. Um, I think Dribble is perfect for illustrators and because you can show off an illustration out of context and it would still, you know, look and work pretty good, work pretty well, really good actually, in fact, but like a snippet of a bit of a UI doesn't really tell you much. Whereas seeing a illustration of an ape head, you know, that is a good illustration. I mean, there's a lot more that goes on behind the scenes in illustration work, but I feel like you can encapsulate a lot more using illustrations on dribble than you can with UI design. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, I don't, I don't do as much work now where I suppose I could show off the workings out. You know, I'm I'm not a religious kind of sketcher, which I know a lot of people are. Um, so we've, we've kind of tended to use it for posting, you know, more polished, not UI stuff, but tends to be sort of branding stuff and, and that kind of thing. Um, which I know is not what it was intended for, but I don't know. It's a, I just look at it as another channel, you know? if prospective clients are looking at your dribble then as a business you need to be putting your best work forward and not posting up sketches of oh i kind of think this might be a good direction with with this thing here maybe not i don't know i'll keep exploring kind of doesn't quite send the same message if people are actually coming there expecting to see finished designs no and i think that's the danger if people as you know that they, they, they might look at something and go actually i don't really know what i'm looking at here and it could be part of a series where you know you're working towards a polished goal because i'm old enough to remember you know where this whole thing came from i mean it was cameron moll used to do um he used to ask people to send him i think it was you know 800 by 800 whatever it was little screen caps of a piece of the thing that they were working on yeah um and that's where the whole kind of dribble concept came from and, uh, you know, it's not like that anymore. I think Dribble would win me back if they said that any screenshot you uploaded had to include at least four paragraphs of text and, like, clickable points on the illustration with captions. So people have to explain why they did something, what they did, and then highlight two or three key features about what they've done. And I think that would be so much more useful to learn from. Yeah. You could learn... The reason behind the reason behind things are so much more powerful than the thing that's in front of you. Well, speaking of, because we need to wrap this up in a minute, but before we sort of close out the show, um, I just want to mention something that I like. Because sure. I do this now because we we don't have sponsors on the show anymore. Um, yeah, it's been a bit negative so talking about design and development and dribble and. <laughs> no, it's not been negative at all. Well, no. But let's put some let's put some happy thoughts back into that. Well, it's I don't think that it's been a negative conversation at all. I think it's been actually quite positive. I just I mean I'm, I am aware that I seem to be the only kind of old bastard grumbling about why nobody talks about color theory anymore, and everybody else is probably thinking, you know, so what? Well, it's it's got lost in the the cloud of which framework should I use, which tool set should I use. Everything's now about which tool set you should use, which framework. Everything is about the tools people use to create things and not about the reasons behind them. I would agree with that. And I, I don't mean to be kind of, I don't want to sound grumbly all the time, you know, some kind of cantankerous old git, but I am a cantankerous old git. No, what I want to do is we, we don't have sponsors on the show anymore. Well, I don't, I don't do the, the thing for money. But what I do now is I 
talk about something that I like and, you know, like my favorite Bodum coffee mug or a rotaring pencil. And, you know, yeah. and if I like it and it's available on Amazon, I'll just put a link in the show notes and, um, you know, people can go and buy my favorite mug. Actually, I got 65 quid from people buying mugs on Amazon, which was quite nice, quite a pleasure. Anyway, so this thing this week isn't just something that I like. It's I absolutely bloody love it. And if you don't have this book, James, you ought to go out and get it because is it available for iPad? Because it won't fit in my bag. Oh God, I forgot about that. We can buy it when you get home. You need to tell me in a minute what's happening when you finish your travels because we never actually got onto that. Okay. But this thing that I absolutely love is a book, and I bet you can get the EPUB version too. But it won't be the same. It's by my absolutely very favourite graphic designer, and it's called Pretty Much Everything by Aaron James Draplin. You heard of Aaron Draplin? Yes, I've seen him speak. Oh, he's a legend. He is amazing. He has such a presence on stage. Did he do the tall tales from a large man talk when you saw him? Was this over in Hybrid in Dublin or wherever it was? This was I, Dublin? No, it might have been Stockholm. Oh, okay. Hybrid. One of one of the two. Yeah, one of it might have been last year's or the year before. Aaron is just amazing. And he's been on the show before. And the last time he was on, he was talking about how he was making this book and it was stressing him out. And by God, it's worth it. I mean, I don't know what toll it took on his health, but this thing that I'm holding in my hand right now, this book is unbelievable. It's it's not just a good book. It's a friggin' masterpiece. Yeah. And he has poured literally everything into this book. I mean, it's not just about design. You know, he's not just kind of cherry picked his best logo designs. This thing has got, absolutely everything in here it's got his whole career it's got his life story in here it's got his high school sketchbooks and you know fanzines that he made in 1990 and all this kind of stuff right up until the present day and it's got just some of the most amazing design stuff and so much of that kind of workings out as well yeah i'm not going to be able to appreciate that on an ipad edition it's it's worth somebody buying you just to kind of all you know just to have when you get them back in your house or something it is absolutely amazing and it's not just really beautifully illustrated because i'm looking at a page here that contains every different fields notes cover that he ever made wow um and also you know his collections of stuff just some of the stuff that he has um, over time. It's also beautifully written. I mean, it's really, really personal. There's not anything which is kind of, um, I don't know. What's the word I'm looking for? Insincere. You know, he's not trying to be anything other than, than he is, you know, in person. Yeah. That's what makes him such a great speaker. It is the most incredible book. And, if you're into design of any kind, you ought to have this book. I mean, it's it's an inch and a bit thick, and it's in hardback, and you can get it from Amazon. And it, I think my paid, I paid seventeen quid for it on Amazon, um, and it's not going to be much more than that. You've just got to get this book. It's unbelievable. Draplin Design Company, Aaron Draplin, pretty much everything is the book. I'll put a link in the show notes. And uh, that's the thing that I love this week. It's Aaron Draplin's new book. It's bloody brilliant. Yeah, definitely. And 
I definitely recommend people checking out any of the talks he's done online because they are fantastic. Ah, he's a legend. Anyway, so yeah. back to the very beginning of the podcast and you said that you're giving up this nomadic lifestyle. What's happening? I am. Uh, so I am moving to settle down in New York for at least a few years. Nice. Yeah. How are you going to get around the visa issue? My visa's uh, application is currently being sorted. Well, it's not been approved yet, so I've got to hold off on that. Uh, Fingers crossed. This, but uh, yeah, exactly. So what kind of visa have you gone for? Uh, the O one. Okay, yeah, that's the one, yeah. Just purely because it's got the best title and I have no education, so I can't get a H-1B. So that will give you the right to, what, live and work there? Yes, as an alien of extraordinary ability. Ah, now that's the one that I've helped a few people, a few of my friends um, have gone in on that particular visa. Um, and some of them have gone on to have H1s as well. Yeah. Um, but I've done, oh dear, two or three more. Um, you know, whatever it is, you have to kind of get all of the... Um, yeah, like letters of, re- yeah, letters of so, recommendation. So much work. I started it like over six months ago, so it's just being checked over now by the lawyers ready for submission so i'm just getting in my last bits of my travel with going to egypt and going to amsterdam before i head to the states i've not explored any of the states so i'm super excited for that well you're gonna love it i mean new york as a place is great anyway new york's my favorite city make sure i mean you'll do this anyway but make sure that you get out to see parts of america which are not urban city-based yeah. I've had my best experiences in America, way far away from LA or San Francisco or Seattle or New York or Boston. Um, we've taken several road trips now where we've driven for, you know, four or five weeks across particularly the kind of the, um, the Southwest. Um, and up into kind of like the Northwest area. And you'll go to places like Wyoming or Idaho or New Mexico, those kind of places. And I always find the people really, really, really nice in those kind of areas. And it's just, we've had the best times in on those kind of road trips. You know, get out. Nobody ever says this. Go to Idaho. It's bloody brilliant. I can't drive. Of course you're you can't. You're killing me here. You're killing me oh, here. Actually, I well, can't do any to, of this. You have to go to drive. I mean, it's no... Bloody if I get my excuse. visa, I can learn to drive in America. Well, this will be good because you'll get a place in America, in New York, and then you'll have to start buying all the things that normal people have, like potato mashers. Oh, got to have my one of that. What are the, I really want one of those machines that turn vegetables into like fake spaghetti. Oh, yeah, actually, yeah, I think Alex, my son, has one of those. Yes, I think he does. It was his birthday last week and he got a potato masher for his birthday. It wasn't his main present, obviously. You can get me a moving in gift. You can get me a potato masher. It'll be great. But no, you're going to be buying all of those things. You're going to start looking at coasters and going, do you know what? I really like those. I need to buy some coasters. I I plan to maintain my same minimalism, (laughs) except with a nice TV and speaker set. Okay. And then everything else, minimal. I've already, already got a Pinterest board of stuff like making a bed and a sofa out of old crates and pallets made of wood. Get your priorities right. Let me know how you get on. I would eat. When you get set up, you can come back and tell it, tell me about it on the podcast. Thank you very much for doing this, by the way. No worries. 
You can follow James on Twitter. He's at James S. Locke. And you've got to check out the website too, james.sl. That's genius, that is. Uh, Sierra Leone, it was such a hard domain name to get my hands on. Ah, oh, and I've got a, an announcement of a domain that I bought the other day. Go on. Which I think is fantastic. Avocar.do. Oh, man, that is genius. Yeah, I have no idea what I'm going to do oh, with no, it, but, but it was it was 150 bucks well spent. I tell you what, there's a product there, or I don't know what it is. It's a frigging JavaScript library. That's what it is. Ah, uh, everything's a JavaScript library. Everything should be in JavaScript. Yeah, definitely. Or you can follow me on Twitter at Malarkey, and to ask questions and suggest topics, you can message this show on Twitter at unfinishedbz, or you can email me at he has at unfinished.bz.